0: So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money, episode fourteen forty, ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award winning money guru Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a thirty minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life. Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. How's everybody doing? It is a big day for me. I am excited to say that today you're listening and I am in New York City hosting a very fun event called Pitch Please that I co-host with my good friend Susie Moore. You may know her. She's been on this show a number of times. She's an author and a podcaster and a life coach. She and I host an annual, well, it has been on hiatus for a couple of years because we know why, but an annual in-person event called Pitch Please, where we gather with many, many entrepreneurs, thought leaders to talk about the media, and how we can be contributors to the media through our storytelling, our advice, our resources, our research. And we invite people from the media to give us the behind-the-scenes reality of what it's like to be a producer, an editor in a magazine, running a digital network, and everyone in between who works in the media today talking about what are the stories that they care about and how as experts in the audience and thought leaders, we can be helpful to them. Sometimes it's by being an expert in an article, sometimes it is by writing your own piece and being a contributor. As somebody myself who started in the media and has worked on all sides of the media, this is something that uh, for me is very natural. And you know, it's a side hustle. Uh, We had a guest on recently who was talking About when you find yourself repeating advice to a friend over coffee. Like a lot of people were coming to me and be like, How do I get press? How do I get the media to take notice of my amazing work and expertise? I have a lot to contribute. And I was like, Well, you know, these are the do's and don'ts. And here's how the media thinks. And here's how the media develops stories. So I realized that this was a a valuable thing to share. And my friend Susie knows this intimately well as well. She's gotten a lot of press for her own business over the years. This is just a fun day for us to get together with some cool people from all over the world. We have guests from Ireland and Australia and all over the United States coming to gather for this event. It feels great to be able to do it again after two years. A lot of these folks who are coming today had had reserved a ticket for our Pitch Please 2020, Fall 2020 Uh, that we, of course, had to cancel. Believe it or not, our last event was in March of 2020. Can you believe it? It was our like grand hurrah. That's what's going on in my world. And speaking of the press and the media... I have to say I'm a little disappointed in the press and the media these days for not covering what's happening in Iran, what continues to be happening in Iran. These freedom fighters, this woman-led revolution in Iran to take over the oppressive theocratic regime is not being covered widely, consistently. My best sources right now is when I go on Instagram and a comedian shares me a video, a hot video from inside Tehran. I'm like, this is this is the future of me, of news i i'm especially covering a, such a an epic world changing event it's like hello and i and i get you know that there aren't any that the country is not allowing journalists to Report from within the country—they're—they're they're cracking down on the press and all of that. So it's very hard, I would think, to vet your sources and make sure that videos are current as opposed to dated. And that has happened, of course, so with all sorts of news. I mean, there's going to be um, there's going to have to be a fact-checking process. So let's put those resources behind it, y'all. You know, I know how it works. <laughs> it just feels disappointing, you know, especially where we are right now. What as what started as a protest or rally has really turned into, I think we're going to look back and say, this was a revolution. This is a revolution. And I think the New York Times wrote a piece about how this is being fueled by the really, really terrible economy in Iran. There's no doubt the economy in Iran is depressing. Inflation is out of control. Unemployment is out of control. But I think that undermines the intent behind this revolution. This revolution is not about bringing inflation down or getting jobs back, right? It's about human rights, women's rights are human rights. And this was a great quote that I saw on Instagram. Again, Instagram is like where it's at. I don't go on TikTok for this news. It's too it's too busy. Uh, but on Instagram, there was a great quote that said, you can't burn women made of fire. You can't burn women made of fire. It made me think of my mom. It made me think of my grandmother, my aunts. We are made of fire, us Iranian women. Ask any of our partners. They will attest to this and we're proud of it. If you're interested in learning more about just, you know, what your Iranian-American neighbors are like, especially those who immigrated here first generation, a book that I love and I've been trying to get the author on this show for years now. We actually did connect, but she was like in the middle of a ton of stuff. She's pretty busy and for good reason. Her book is called Funny and Farsi. Have you read it? Firuze Dumas. It is a beautifully written hilarious book about her her family's immigration from Iran in the 1970s to California. It is a deeply personal story. I guess it, as I said, both it's funny, it's moving, and I love it. It's just one of those books. It's not a very long read. Highly recommend that book because the media has been doing sort of a slow job covering Iran. What can I do, right? I don't cover international war or politics, but I do have a personal finance column that I write every week. And I thought it would be a good time to reflect on my Iranian heritage and what it has taught me about money. Article essentially is about what I learned from my Iranian parents about leveraging luck and having financial autonomy. Luck played a huge role in our lives. Huge role. And it is not something that we take for granted in the Tarabi household. And I think that the message for everybody, wherever you're from, wherever you live, whatever kind of money you make, there is something very important about recognizing the luck that has arrived in your life. Now, some people have more luck than others. I will be the first to admit, I consider myself one of those people who had more luck than others. It's important to recognize that. You know, we talk often on the show about having gratitude and this is a gratitude practice and I go through life knowing that your luck could run out, you know, and and so what are you going to do? What's led me to be vigilant about my finances, adamant about my independence and building financial autonomy? And I talk As my father says, sometimes you can create your own luck, but you have to know what your goals are. You have to know what you really want in life because sometimes luck is disguised as opportunity. We don't sometimes take those opportunities because we don't know what the value is in it for us. I would love for you to check out that piece and let me know what you think. All right, let's go to the iTunes review section and pick our reviewer of the week. I am so excited for this review. I read it. And I was like, this is going to be it. This is the one. You just know. You just know sometimes you're like, oh, this is is the one. I got to read this one out loud. Okay. This one is from our friend who actually left his name in the review, um, Mr. Red. Hi, Mr. Red. He calls this show one of the best personal finance podcasts. Here he goes. I've listened to the So Money podcast for almost one year, and it is one that keeps me consistently coming back. Other personal finance podcasts only push their services, but Farnoosh really wants you to become a smarter and better consumer and investor. I love her insights on every topic. The diversity of the interviews are a very strong point, especially with those groups who are underrepresented. I encourage family and close friends, including my two teenage children, to listen to the show. Keep up the great work and thank you for your service to others, Mr. Red. And he said, if you select this interview, the person who contacts you should explain the Mr. Red refers to his favorite English soccer team, the Liverpool Football Club. All right. I'm not really sure what that means. (laughs) I don't... (laughs) <laughs> I get it. It's a it's football, which is soccer here. Uh, but what is confusing me is you think that I have someone on my team that reaches out to my listeners? Mm-mm, it's me. The buck starts and stops with me. Now, I used to have team and I'm very grateful for the people that were full-time with me in the past. But these days to their credit, they got me rocking and rolling and created systems for me. So I didn't need them anymore. And now they're off doing much more cooler things. Thank you for recognizing the diversity in the guests that I bring on the show. That is very, very intentional. And you're right. I don't really sell anything on this podcast other than more content that is free. So you can be confident that I'm not here to try to get you into an MLM or get you to buy crypto something or other or an NFT. Like I am just... Here for the good information. And you have two teenage kids. That's really fantastic. And I love that you're engaging them. They're going to be rock stars. They're going to be financial rock stars. You know, I thought about how my dad helped me start a Roth IRA when I was a teenager. When I got one of my first jobs, he took me to the local credit union and he was like, open this Roth IRA. And what is that? And I still have it. I have not closed it or moved the money over. I, you know, I don't contribute to it anymore, but. For me, it's very uh, symbolic of the thoughtfulness that my parents had all those years ago. And anyway, I'm getting off track here. But all this to say, Mr. Red, thank you for your review. I'll be in touch, me. I'll send you a link where you can pick a time for us to chat. And if you'd like to be the next person I call, please leave a review in our iTunes review section. And every week I pick a name out of the ring and you can get a free 15-minute money session. In case you missed our episodes this week on Wednesday, let's go backwards. We had Sarah Becker on the show, creator of Becker Talks Money. She runs a business helping creative entrepreneurs manage their own finances, their personal finances. So maybe they're running a successful business, but their personal savings account needs some TLC. Maybe you're hitting your earnings goals, but you don't have a whole lot in your personal checking account. That's where Sarah steps in. And on the show, she brought strategies and advice. Before that, on Monday, we this was great. We talked to Barbara Sloan, who is the author of Tipped, the life-changing guide to financial freedom for waitresses, bartenders, strippers, and all other service industry professionals. She provided incredible advice for the millions, millions of service workers in our country who make inconsistent pay, probably don't get benefits. They don't get paid leave. They don't get retirement accounts, health insurance. How does somebody who wants to maintain, who wants to sustain a career in service make it work financially? Barbara has had over 20 jobs in the service industry all before starting her own business. So she has great advice. And in my newsletter this week, I actually borrowed some of her advice on how to tip On the other side of the equation, as patrons, how can we support the service industry through tipping? What is the etiquette? What is the protocol? What are the new expectations? Things are kind of changing. If you're not subscribed to our newsletter, by the way, I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into that weekly newsletter. It is chock full of insights, exclusive stuff. I write stuff in the newsletter that doesn't really show up anywhere else. It sort of captures what's on my mind that week, something that maybe a guest said on the show that triggered me, inspired me, and I want to write about it. It is growing fast. Thank you to everybody who has subscribed to the newsletter. And I think you're liking it. Can I say that? I'll put the link in our show notes. Okay, it is Q&A time and we're gonna kick it off with our recession help desk question of the week. I'm all about consistency, right? I started this back in, I wanna say August and it didn't seem very recession-y back then, but we know, I mean, I think I read a stat this week that said like almost every CEO is expecting a recession this time next year, by this time next year, maybe sooner. This week, an audience member wants to know whether she should can her financial advisor. Here's the question. As we head into a recession, I like the idea of continuing to work with my certified financial planner who can help me answer questions, manage our kids' college savings plan, and provide an overall sense of calm. But I keep hearing that it can be too much money. I pay my advisor 1% of my total investments every year. Is it worth it or should I fire my CFP? Okay, so here's my advice. And I have talked about how to part ways with your financial planner. I've gone through it. I have the script. If you want it, email me for newshouldsomoneypodcast.com. I've shared with it on the show before, but I'm happy to if you're new to the show and you're like, wait, what? I need that. Just email me, I'll send it out. But listen, good financial advisors can be invaluable They can help us plan, they can help us save, they can give us our time back, they can provide reassurance, especially in these times, these difficult recessionary times. So it's really hard to put a price on that, but advisors do tend to charge a percentage deducted from your managed investments every single year. That's whether you make money or you lose money. So just prepare for that. And what our friend here is paying one percent is pretty standard. It's anywhere from like half a percent to one and to one and like one and a quarter percent. It sometimes depends on the amount of assets that you have under management. The more you have, the smaller the fee. But one percent is pretty much the average. But I will say this: if you measure that percentage against the benefits that you're receiving, uh, and you you feel that it's too high or it's not sustainable. You could part ways, but I would try this first. You can try to negotiate. You can either suggest to bring down that percentage, go to a monthly retainer structure so you're paying maybe a few hundred dollars a month instead of, you know, thousands of dollars a year contingent attached to, you know, your your balance. Um ask about what they can do to make this fee more amenable to you. I Find that more advisors are being more flexible these days. And believe me, you, in a recession, they don't want to lose business. You know, as much as you're on the fence about spending money, they don't want to lose business. So see if you can find a happy medium. I mean, at the end of the day, if your advisor is giving you back like an hour a month and then you say, hey, I'm paying thousands of dollars a year, I don't know, what's your time worth, right? That's really part of it too. But if you like your advisor also because he or she's calling you to reassure you, they have an open line, they get back to your emails right away, you feel like a lot less anxiety. I mean, in that case, they're kind of like a therapist, your financial therapist, then that's worth something too. So make a list of all of the values, all of the benefits that your advisor is providing and not just the administrative stuff, but actually, the, the intangibles, like the reassurance and answering questions that aren't black or white and getting you through tough times with more confidence, what's that worth to you? What are you paying? And then what's that worth to you? If you have a recession-related question, you can email me. We have a special email set up for this, recessionhelp at cnet.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's go to the wider mailbag. We have questions about how to budget ahead of buying a home. FAFSA, you know, the enrollment for the 2023-2024 academic year, enrollment for uh, federal student aid. FAFSA application is now available online. You can apply question here about whether or not it's, it's worth it if you are a family that makes significant income over $100,000 a year. Is this something that your family would even qualify for? So I've got some guidance there. And then also we have a lovely, we have a friend in the audience, Madison, who is having a hard time affording a very important medication. And she's wondering what are some alternatives, not to the medication, but to affording it. <laughs> I'm not a doctor. Okay, first up is Jillian, who writes in, I'm a big fan of your show and I've been listening and learning since the spring of 2021. I wanted to get your thoughts on the best way to handle emergency funds when facing a change in housing. Here's a little bit more about what's going on with Jillian. She has a six-month emergency fund for her current living situation. She's renting with her fiance, but they're looking to buy a house in the North Jersey area, which as she says, as you know, is incredibly expensive. And her monthly housing costs, she says, will be more than than the current expenses, though they have done the math and they can afford it based on their incomes. So here's her pickle. Ahead of buying this house or around the same time, she wants to also be sure that she has an additional three month emergency fund based on what their costs are going to be. But she also wants to have liquid cash for the cost of buying the house. And she feels that if she only saves for a new and improved emergency fund, it's gonna take many months before she has enough for both that and this home purchase. She says my fiance and I have consistent incomes, we work in areas that are stable. So she's telling me her job security is pretty good. How should she balance these competing needs? So the competing needs is save for more of a rainy day, an additional 3 months so I I'm, I'm gonna, if I'm reading between the lines here Jillian, you want to go from 6 months to 9 months emergency And you also want to save for down payment and closing costs and all of the related expenses to purchasing a home. Totally get it. If I was making a hierarchy of to-dos right now, I would say start focusing on that really big down payment. Okay, Start a down payment fund and add on that closing costs. Now, I don't know what kind of a home you're looking for, what your budget is, but let's just say in Essex County, I think the average home is... Uh, somewhere around seven, eight hundred thousand dollars. So eight hundred thousand dollars, that's twenty percent down, one sixty K just for the down payment. Tack on that, another two, three, four percent for closing costs. You're talking about another, you know, maybe twenty, 000, thirty thousand dollars. Let's just be really conservative here and say two hundred thousand dollars for your upfront home purchasing costs. Now, the one silver lining to this housing market, and there aren't many, but we wrote about this on CNET recently about like, what's going on? You know, the winter's coming around. Usually this is a slower time of the year for selling, which means buyers may have more buying power, but we know with interest rates where they are and house prices not coming down that much, especially in competitive areas like Essex County, New Jersey, It's not like you're going to really win on price so much. You'll get a little bit of a discount than maybe this time last year. But really, where you can win is in negotiating because the demand is just not going to be there as much. You're not going to have 50 people bidding for a home. You might have five, but that does create more space, more optionality for buyers to work with the sellers and say, hey, will you pay for? my mortgage points? Will you help pay for my closing costs? Will you do some repairs before I move in? And by the way, I'm getting that expect- inspection. Anyone who's buying a home right now without an inspection, this is not the new normal. That was a weird thing that happened during the pandemic. This should not continue. This is, this is a bad idea, everybody. get that Get that inspection, especially for the older home, especially if you just eyeball the house and you're like, Uh Uh-uh, one hurricane and, you know, we're homeless. You gotta get that inspection. You wanna get that in writing. It's for your security. And so my friend, Jillian, priority here is, I would work on that down payment because that's the real mountain to climb here. You've got six months of savings already. That's fantastic. And P.S., it's gonna take time for you to buy a home. I mean, I could be wrong. You could find your dream house tomorrow, close in a month, but realistically, it's going to take, three, four, five months, maybe longer to find a house, to close on the house. And all that time, assuming you have your down payment in pocket, you can then go back to saving more for your rainy day. Because I'm assuming here that when you're ready to strike, you've got all your financial ducks in a row. And I will tell you from experience, it, there is no benefit in rushing the home buying process. A lot of people who did that in the pandemic have done so regretfully. And we know that the pandemic was very much a unique circumstance, but in general, with home purchases, people tend to get overexcited. They start to work with a lot of adrenaline. A home is not just where you eat and sleep. It's like where you build a life. And so there's a lot of hopes and dreams for the house you're going to move into and get really carried away in the buying process. I'm not saying that's you, but I'm just saying in general, people tend to scurry. To the, to the finish line because they just really, really want the house. And I totally get it. But it's very important that before you make an offer that you feel completely financially solid. You've checked your credit. You've gotten pre-approved. You've got that rainy day reserve. You've looked into insurance. You've got your down payment money. You've got your closing cost money. That puts you in the running. That makes you a very viable buyer and you'll close much faster because of it. So doing the front load work now, we'll make the buying process that much smoother. You'll just have more options. Yeah, maybe it'll take an extra six months, but trust me, once you're ready, you are ready, and it will feel good to have options and go into this market feeling powerful. Kudos to you and your fiance for getting that six-month reserve. You will get to nine months. I, I You will, but priority, I would say, is that down payment if you haven't already. talking six figures that you wanna save for. Focus on that, compartmentalize. Zero in on that. If you're trying to do too much at the same time, you can get overwhelmed and you you might quit. Good luck. If you've got any more questions about buying real estate in Essex County, call me. I joke that this might be what I retire into is becoming a real estate agent in Montclair. <laughs> and You know I'm going to be marketing it here. I know I promised I wouldn't sell anything on this podcast, but... Okay, next up is a question about the free application for federal student aid, FAFSA. Raise your hand if you filled this baby out when you were heading into college or grad school. I'm raising my hand. Okay, so what is it? The federal government is the largest lender of student loans in the country, whether we like it or not. And to qualify for federal aid, which includes student loans, grants, work study, Pell Grants, you have to fill out the FAFSA. Go to studentaid.gov. And this week, the application opened for the 2023 to 2024 academic year. So, what does that mean? If you are a senior in high school right now, or maybe even a junior in college, you apply for this every year, but it starts usually the year before you head to college, assuming you need money to go to college. So, you go on this website where you fill out the paper application. You put in all the inputs, which includes like your family's household income, the number of people in your family. There's going to be some numbers that maybe you don't know, but your parents do. So that's where it'll be helpful to sit down with a member of your family that can pull out last year's tax return and just go through this form one by one. You can also talk to your guidance counselor at school. I'm sure they have done this many times. And studentaid.gov is a very good comprehensive site. I'm sure there are a lot of walkthroughs and tutorials. But essentially, this is how, if you wanna get a federal student loan, you gotta fill out the FAFSA. If you want a grant, you gotta fill out the FAFSA. The question here, though, is, our family makes substantial income, six figures. Is there any point to applying for federal aid if our family makes, quote-unquote, too much money? Now, technically speaking, there is no such thing as making too much money when it comes to eligibility for, Applying for aid. Anyone making any amount of money can apply. And yes, you make a lot of money and you have no debt, you have two people in your family, you might not get much money, if anything. But they will look at the whole picture because we know that people who make quote unquote high salaries aren't quote unquote rich necessarily because maybe they're supporting many people. They have many dependents that may not just be their kids, but maybe also a parent, a grandparent, the sandwich generation. Hello then there may be a situation where they have debt, right? They have car loans, they have mortgage, they have other sorts of debt that will be factored into what's known as their expected family contribution. EFC is based on the parent and student's income and assets. So students, if you work, if you have assets, that's also going to go into the calculation. Like I said, they'll look into your family size, the number of kids that you have already in college, and other factors. You know, I remember meeting a family once, and they had four kids, one after the other, and they were all in college, and the parents were teachers. And I was thinking in my mind, like, how is this math mathing? And they were going to great schools. And on the one hand, I was secretly You know the the the, the thought bubble was like, either they're all on scholarship or they're all screwed because they've taken out you know half a million dollars in debt (laughs) combined or a million dollars in debt combined. And mom and dad were like, no, you know the reality is is that they because we have limited income and we have four kids in college that they got tons of scholarship. And the FAFSA is great because it's not just what the government looks like to consider what sort of aid package to give you. It is also what the schools you're applying to reference as they consider who gets scholarships and merit aid and perhaps even some loans. But my advice is the more free money you can get, the better, right? We don't wanna have a situation where in four years you're looking at you know six figures worth of debt the average income right now for a college grad is around $60,000, which is actually higher than I would have guessed, I think maybe around $50,000 or $48,000, but you know, dollars 60 to $62,000. And if you've got $162,000 in debt, that's going to be a problem. But if you have thirty dollars or $40,000 in the student loan debt with a low interest rate, making sixty 000, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year, I think you're in a safer place so the rule of thumb used to be don't take out more than your anticipated income uh, po- post-college, which I know it sounds crazy because that's like one year of tuition. But we know we got to be smarter than that. Just because the money is available doesn't mean you should take it. The maximum amount that someone can get from the federal government is in the low tens of thousands of dollars per year. So maybe 15000 a year. That's 60000 mm, Okay. We can work with that. Anything more than that? I don't know. It's going to end up becoming an Ask Farnoosh question. All right. That's that's my FAFSA 101 there. Last but not least, our question from a friend in the audience, Madison, who is struggling to afford a very important medication. Here's her question. Hey, Farnoosh, I've been listening to your podcast for the last few months, and it's completely demystified the world of personal finance. I have a question, though, I'd love to get your thoughts on. A little background, I'm 25, I work full-time, I earn 68,000 a year. This year I have begun dipping my toes into investing. I built a four-month emergency fund and I'm contributing to a 401k for retirement and I have started saving for a house, fantastic. Madison, where do you get your financial advice besides this show? I am curious, is it TikTok? Nothing against TikTok. Well, some things against TikTok, but I feel like if a 25-year-old like you Is getting all this education and motivation from the internet. I want to know where you're hanging out. This is great. But she says, here's the rub. I'm coming up on my 26th birthday and I have been using my mom's insurance to cover costs for a very expensive but absolutely necessary medication. No insurance programs through my employer will cover this. I have exhausted all resources. I'm trying to sort out a financial plan to best cover this cost and I've looked into a health savings account. Do these really provide much benefit? Are there any resources or strategies that I'm not thinking of? I welcome any thoughts that you have. All right, Maddie, so a couple thoughts for you. Firstly, I do think that an HSA is worth looking into. If you have a high deductible insurance plan through your job, you may be able to tack on what's known as a health savings account. We've talked about these on the show. Essentially, it's a savings account that lets you put aside money on a pre-tax basis to pay for certain qualified medical expenses. This, you want to make sure would qualify. It sounds like it may. Out-of-pocket prescription, anything that's out-of-pocket that basically is for your medical use. The benefit is that these are untaxed dollars. You get to pay for deductibles, copayments, coinsurance, other expenses, all to lower your healthcare costs. And There's a maximum that you can contribute to an HSA for 2022. You can contribute as as a single person up to $3,650. That's if you're only self-covered. And then if you are in a relationship family, you have up to $7,300 for the full family for the HSA. And if you don't use the money, it rolls over. You don't lose it. You still get to spend it in the next year. So don't worry about that. An HSA can also earn interest or other earnings which are not taxable. So some people like to use HSAs as a substitute, as alternative retirement accounts, but that's another show. So yes, I think the HSA, if you're eligible, always good because whether it's for this drug or other out-of-pocket, qualified out-of-pocket medical expenses, you can get a tax advantage way to purchase these items. The other thing I want to tell you to do, if you haven't already, is to talk to your doctor. Whoever is prescribing you this medicine, have you talked to them about a generic? Have you talked to them about if this is such a Difficult drug to get insurance to cover, but it is important. Are there loopholes that you don't know about that your doctor may because she's or he's gone through this with another patient? Um, I would really look into chat rooms, chat boards, where like Reddit boards, even like looking to see if anyone has had any success. Working with a doctor, and it may not be the doctor that you have, maybe you'll get a second opinion, who may be able to give you some guidance on how to get access to this drug in a more affordable way, whether it's here's the insurance company that offers it. And then last, I know that you get insurance through your employer and we love that because they subsidize it, but calling up your mom's insurance company and saying, what is like the lowest, lowest monthly plan that I can get on? Maybe it's less than a thousand a month. And that then gives you access to this drug. Is there a $300 a month plan that you can get on through your mom's insurance? So you'll have two health insurance plans, essentially. You'll have your work plan and you'll have this basic plan that is your mom's plan that you're gonna buy on the marketplace. But maybe it's like just something really, really simple. It's gonna be less than $1,000 a month and it will give you access to this drug for a very low cost. So those are three options. One, HSA. HSA isn't really um, something that you might want to do. I think you should do it. I think that's a good idea just to have for all the health expenses that you may incur out of pocket. But I would also say that talking to your doctor or another doctor who may have experience with this problem can give you some tricks, tips. If there's a generic, great, but I have a feeling you've probably explored that. And then third... Doubling up on health insurance, like sticking with your employer's health insurance plan because it's super cheap and gives you access to a lot. But if there's only one insurance company that's going to cover this drug, what's the lowest plan that you can get on there that would cover this drug? Yeah. So instead of paying $1,000 a month, maybe you're paying $300 a month plus a $25 copay for the prescription. That's health insurance arbitrage right there. It's where we're at, y'all, in this country. We just have to cobble it together, kung fu our way through the health insurance. Maze. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. I will see you back here on Monday. We have a really exciting month. The October month is going to be chock full of so many stories. We have in partnership with Next Advisor. This celebration called Next Up, celebrating the new voices in personal finance. And next Wednesday, we're going to kick it off with the editor of Next Advisor, our friend Adam Ariamo, who's going to tell us all about what's in store. And then in the subsequent episodes, interview episodes, we're going to meet some of the honorees. In this celebration of the new voices of personal finance, we're going to talk to Eliza Jope, Jeremy Schneider, Vanessa Wachtmeister, Julian and Kirsten Saunders, Diana King, Bernadette Joy, so many incredible financial experts, influencers, thought leaders, authors. I feel really good about the future when I talk to these individuals and see the changes that they're making in so many people's lives and including their own lives. Hope you have a great weekend, everybody. See you back here on Monday. We'll be talking to Tara Falcone, who's the founder of a new app that that aims to make investing a lot simpler. Stay tuned. I hope your weekend is so money.